All right, so we are on the last leg of this study, inductive Bible study. We started uh, with the section on observation and starting that stage, just making sure we, obs- we are observing the text, we're asking good questions of the text, we're laying everything out on the table to then sort through in the next stage, which was interpretation. Um, pretty lengthy walking through that because there's lots of principles to be mindful of when you're seeking to apply or to interpret Scripture. And so now we come to the last leg of the last stage, which is application. Um, God's Word's meant to be applied to us and lived out, and so we want to be careful that we're applying God's Word carefully, okay? So real quickly, just a quick overview of what we're going to do in this unit. Uh, We're going to do, so basically there's three more chapters in the book. We're going to split chapter 13 into two parts. So that's what step one is, establishing relevance and legitimacy Assessing the text's applicability to us today. So we're going to talk about that this morning and next week. And then we'll get into the step two, step three, the following two weeks. So step two, appropriating the meaning, living out the text's teaching in our world. And step three, doing theology, the outflow of an inductive pro- approach to Scripture. Okay? So in this chapter, we're going to discuss how to establish relevance and legitimacy when it comes to applying a text to our lives today. So... Any of us can come to God's Word and pull a verse out and then say, well, this is what it means to me, this is how I'm applying it to my life. But we want to be careful to make sure any applications we're making are relevant, uh, that they're, as we're going to see, based on a solid interpretation first. So the book says application requires movement from the original context to our contemporary context, a journey laden with questions of relevance and legitimacy. We've talked about the various gaps that exist in uh, us understanding Scripture. You know, distance, it was in another place in the world. It was thousands of years ago. Um, There's cultural differences. There's all these gaps. And so as we seek to take Scripture that was in a different context and then bring it to today and apply it, we've got to ask questions. There's a lot of uh, questions we've got to go through to determine is that a legitimate or relevant application. The book goes on, Intended meaning is a matter of historical and literary knowledge. Discerning significance, on the other hand, is a matter of wisdom, for it concerns not the achieving of knowledge, but the applica- or the appreciation of knowledge and its right use. So when we think about interpretation, it's typically pretty objective. This is what the author intended. This is what this means. When we get into the area of application, it's a little more subjective. Right? There may be various applications depending on our lives, um, and so you have to use wisdom as we're seeking to take that interpretation and apply it to different uh, various levels of uh, our lives and what context we're in. So there may be multiple applications to various people and situations, but here's something important. They are not infinite. There's not an infinite number of applications. Well, this means this to me, this means this to me. There, there are still parameters for which we can properly apply Scripture, okay? There may be multiple applications to various people, but they're not infinite, uh, meaning there can be misapplications. We can misapply Scripture in our lives. The book goes on, The guiding principle of application can be summed up as follows, That which is meaningful for our day must have its foundation in correct interpretation. The meaning of the text in its original context. Put another way, A text cannot be meaningful today in a way that is inconsistent with the original author's 
intended meaning. And that's why application comes last. We've got to have proper understanding of interpretation so that we don't misapply Scripture. So often we come to Scripture and we'll read a passage and we want to jump straight to the application without taking the time to observe the text, ask questions to properly interpret it, and then let our application be an outflow of our interpretation, okay? So as we think about this, this is what we're going to be looking at the next two weeks. There's three stages when it comes to processing and applying a text. So the one we're going to look at today, evaluate the relevance of the text for application in our world today. So we'll touch on that today. Then next week we'll do these other two. Determine legitimacy by drawing parallels between the interpretation of the text and potential applications. And then articulate teaching points, clear, concise statements that summarize what God's Word is teaching at any particular point in Scripture. So we'll get into that next week, okay? So we're talking about establishing relevance in application. How do we establish, is this a relevant application to us today? Is this passage, is there anything in this passage that's applicable today? Is it totally just because it's so far removed, because of the liter- literature it is, whatever it may be, is there any, any application whatsoever, okay? We've talked throughout this study about the her- hermeneutical triad. Does anyone remember what, what are some of the uh, aspects of the hermeneutical triad? You could probably glance at your notes and get a hint too because it's our subpoints under this main point. It's three, we could say, gaps that we have to overcome in our understanding of Scripture. So the hermeneutical triad. Yep, yep. Not cultural, because that would sort of fit under the category of historical. Literary. So you've got, yeah, you're right there, though. Historical. What historical aspects do we need to overcome in understanding theological when we're thinking about different covenants and God is progressively revealing himself to us throughout Scripture? And then literary. There's different literary genres. And so as we come to application, we're thinking in the same lens of the, this hermeneutical triad, Okay. Um, So we need to be aware of these realities in the interpretation stage because uh, they result in challenges in our understanding of Scripture because of the gaps we need to overcome. So we've got to apply this to to application as well. And so I like this quote from the book because it shows us the importance of recognizing these aspects of the history, theology, literature of Scripture. Because the Bible was inspired within the context of real historical events, it is marked by cultural and situational particularities. Because the Bible reflects an astounding diversity of literary genres, not all texts speak directly to application. Because Scripture reflects a progressively revealed theological message, we must be careful in determining whether expectations and imperatives are for the original readers only, for us today, or for both. So to properly establish relevance and application, we have to consider these factors, okay? So the first one, as we talked about, is that idea of, History. When we're seeking to apply scripture, what are the historical aspects that we need to be mindful of so we can make relevant applications of God's word? Okay? And there's two below this, okay? So cultural relativity, and the other one we'll get to in a minute is situational relativity, okay? So the first one, cultural relativity, okay? We must assess the cultural particularities of a passage in order to avoid misapplying it in a way that would produce a cultural absurdity, which is something very different in our culture 
than what was ever meant in the original culture. Okay? So the example, and we've used this before, is that of a holy kiss. Okay? Five times in uh, different epistles, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So if we take that at face value, and we say, well, the Bible commands us that we need to kiss one another in a holy way, and we seek to apply that to our Western culture, which, you know, there are still cultures today, you know, I think of like Italy, where they will kind of do that kiss on the side of their face. That would not be a cultural absurdity somewhere like that, but for Western culture, uh, we could cross some lines, right? And so we need to understand this, this idea of cultural relativity. The goal of interpretation, okay, so stepping back to interpretation and this idea of a holy kiss, would be to understand everything possible regarding this ancient practice. So before we ever want to seek to apply it, We've got to, again, interpret what is a holy kiss, and we've got to observe and ask questions. So this might include an understanding of the form of the practice. Was it a kiss on the forehead? Was it a kiss on the cheek or the lips? What was its function in society? One might also research a number of related questions. Was this holy kiss an adaptation of an ancient secular practice that was implemented in a special way in the church? Or was this common throughout the culture, but then they were applying it in a different way in the church? Um, Was it adopted from Jewish or Greco-Roman culture? What's the cultural background for this practice? Did it have a nuanced function in the church that differed from society in general? What exactly did such a kiss convey culturally and socially? How does each example of the imperative function in each individual letter? So again, we've got to, first of all, try to understand what is this practice that's happening? What, how do we properly interpret it before we then seek to apply it? Okay? So as we've talked about in Western culture, if we just said, all right, it says to kiss each other, so we've got to do it, it would be pretty, pretty uh, culturally absurd for us today. The challenge in applying this is not historically situational, and we'll talk about situational relativity next, but it's not just that um, this is found where you know, Paul's telling one individual person to do this, so it's a specific situation, because it's actually mentioned five times in the epistles, so it's a pretty regular command in the epistles, so it's not a a situational thing. It's also not related to literary genre, because they're in epistles, and as we're going to see, epistles are pretty applicable, pretty directly applicable to us today, so that's not the issue at hand. It's also not because of any kind of theological discontinuity, which we'll talk about as well, so it is strictly a cultural relativity issue, okay? So, what might, as we think about this instance, and we're not going to dive into trying to understand all the background of a holy kiss, but I think we can hopefully have an awareness enough that I can ask this question, but we're going to look for, in cases like this, what would maybe be a cultural equivalent to today and to our culture here in the West of a holy kiss. Can you guys think of anything? A cultural equivalent. Something that would be a way we would uh, practice this, but not in, the, in a, as direct a way. It's an equivalent. Something we do today that's not culturally absurd that would still be in keeping with what this says. What would be a cultural equivalent? Maybe? A handshake? A holy handshake? Right? Okay. Yeah? Absolutely. What else? Can you think of any other maybe cultural equivalents? A hug? Yeah, absolutely. A hug is a little more... Um, uh, intimate, I guess, in a sense, like it communicates a little more affection than just a handshake, but but really doesn't cross the line. It's not culturally absurd. Um, absolutely, 
Um, so, uh, and I think that's the main, main two we think about uh, today is a handshake and a hug, right? A holy handshake, holy hug is what we could call them, but that wouldn't be culturally absurd, okay? Now, in this case, it's pretty easy for us to find a cultural equivalent. We can think in terms of what's a way we can show our, our brotherly love for one another um, in our culture, but sometimes that may not be as direct. We might not be able to find a, a clear equivalent to that practice then, okay? So we also need to be thinking about the underlying principle of a command, okay? So think less about a cultural equivalent and what would maybe be the underlying message that this command to greet one another with a holy kiss is communicating? What's the underlying principle that's being communicated when they when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss? Show, demonstrate brotherly love to one another? Absolutely. Anybody add to that? Or That pretty well sums it up. The book just uh, says simply, um, perhaps it's understood as the need to reinforce brotherly love through an outward display of non-sensual love and affection within the community of believers. Okay, so it's not crossing that, that boundary uh, into sensuality, it's some form of outward display, but it's a way of communicating that brotherly love in a community of believers. Okay, so that's the underlying principle. And so, really, we could then take that underlying principle and then we can apply that to various cultures. Let's say you're a missionary and you're in Africa and they don't do the kiss thing, but they have a different way of greeting one another. Well, you've got the underlying principle of, well, how does this culture express a physical way of, of greeting and showing that brotherly love? You know, I, I don't know what, you know, maybe they kick feet or something. I don't, I don't know in different cultures what might happen. So you have that underlying principle that then you can apply whatever culture you're in. Okay, does that make sense? So we want to be thinking about cultural equivalence in our way, but also that underlying principle. Okay. So let's talk about the next aspect of when it comes to history and making sure we're relevantly applying scripture. So this is situational relativity. So one is cultural, we see that cultural practice of a holy kiss, this one's situational, okay? Evaluating scripture through the lens of situational particularity, one must ask whether a text is meant to be normative or not, or perhaps more precisely, to what degree is a text meant to be normative for later generations? And then they say, this may entail oversimplification, but if the circumstances of a text are repeated in a variety of settings, or if a text appears to be addressed to a universal audience, then it is likely normative. Conversely, if a text is bound by unique circumstances in an uncommon setting, its relevance may be limited to its original audience within the context of its original setting. Even then, rarely is situational relevance determined by black and white distinctions. Determining the degree to which a text is meant to be normative is in large part a matter of discernment. Okay, So here's an example of situational, uh, a couple examples of situational relativity, okay? In 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 13, uh, Paul is talking, he's wrapping up his epistle to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, come to me soon, bring the cloak that I left at Troas, as well as the scrolls and especially the parchments, okay? So, do we take those verses and then we get up here and preach or teach you know, we need to go soon to find this, per, you know, whoever it may be. 
and take scrolls to them and take parchments and we're going to do exactly because that's what scripture tells us to do. Are we going to be able to apply that directly? No, we, we recognize clearly in that passage it's a very situational thing. Paul's in prison. Timothy's planning a visit and he says, Timothy, come as soon as you can. Bring these things. It's very situational. This is not meant to be universal. We need to be taking scrolls and parchments to people in cloaks, right? Um, so this is a pretty clear example, and I think that's probably why the book uses this, so we can understand. But here's one that maybe is not as... This, this verse does sometimes get abused by certain people, and it's 1 Timothy 5.23, where Paul says to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so some people say, see, Scripture says you should be drinking alcohol, you should be consuming it. Um, is that what that verse, is that how we directly apply that verse? No, and that, now that's not to say, again, we could look at Scripture and look at the issue of alcohol usage, and we know that Scripture doesn't say anywhere you should never drink ever, but it, the bounds are drunkenness, right? You shouldn't be in that area of drunkenness. But some people use this to go the other extreme. The Bible says we should be drinking all that. But what are some situational circumstances that would have been taking place when Paul shares this with Timothy? What are some things you could be thinking of that would make that situation specific and not a universal command? What are some situational circumstances, as Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake? Right, there's a medicinal, clearly, aspect to it. Um, and, And so, of course, you know, medication today is something that, you know, if we're having an ailment and there's medication that, you know, mankind has been able to use and develop from what God's created to help, then uh, absolutely that'd be a way to apply it. And so we want to be, we want to recognize the situation of clearly Timothy's sick in some way. Um, what else? Can you think of any other situational things that, that Paul, or we want to be mindful of as Paul tells Timothy to drink wine for his stomach's sake? Why do you think there, and, and maybe you haven't studied this passage, but do we have any idea of why Timothy might have been sick? And why Paul tells him to drink wine? What, what do you think, uh, in that day and age, you got an idea, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in that day and age, wine was very common because the water was not as pure as what we can get today. And so putting a little bit of wine in the water would kill a lot of the bacteria and would make it safer to drink. And so for whatever reason, it seems like Timothy was abstaining from wine. He was drinking water that maybe uh, wasn't, you know, pure. And so that was making his stomach upset. And so Paul says, look, just take a little wine. Don't completely abstain because clearly it's it's not uh, agreeing with you, right? Okay. Uh, another one might be the strength of alcohol, right? Was this, is this a direct uh, situation to what we have available today? Maybe not. They might have. So there's just different things to be keeping in mind when it comes to this situation and when Paul, what Paul's saying to Timothy, okay? Um, and so we want to keep that in mind. If there's places where water's pure, we, we don't really have to... Um, push that, you know, hey, we need to be drinking, that kind of thing, right? Okay, so it's just things to be mindful of 
so we're not making misapplications of Scripture, okay? Any questions in with a cultural relativity or situational relativity when it comes to understanding the historical aspect of applying God's Word? All right, so we'll move on to the next one. This is regarding literature. So this is another part of that hermeneutical triad, the literary aspects of it, different genres of Scripture. The book says, Some texts are naturally oriented toward application. Commandments, exhortations, precepts, and imperatives are inherently meant to be applied. However, most literary forms in Scripture take a less direct path to application. In the pages of Scripture lie many texts that are difficult to apply, not because of historical or theological barriers, but due to literary barriers. Okay, so let's get into a couple examples of this. The first one would be narrative examples. Okay, so Scripture, and probably the vast majority of Scripture, is what we would categorize as narrative. Okay, there's narrative, it's they're narrating, here's what happened, this situation happened, and so we have to be careful when directly applying narrative passages to us today. Um, in fact, the book would tell us we really, to understand and to relevantly apply narrative passages, we need to really look at larger units of Scripture. So we need to look at a whole narrative unit where this happened and we see all the events and we see a big picture view of it to be able to apply what happened. If we're looking for little nuggets within narrative, we can get in trouble sometimes, okay? And they say that when you look for a nugget of applicable truth in every element of a narrative, the tendency is to find more application than what the literature naturally communicates. And I've seen pastors do this where they'll read into something that happened in a narrative and they'll pick on one little thing and pull it out and make the whole sermon based on this one aspect that's really not a a big deal. It's really not what the author was seeking to communicate, okay? Um, and I, I tried to think of examples, and I, I, I failed to think of a specific example, but keep an eye out for this, where we're looking at this narrative, and look at this, this little tiny thing that happened in the narrative, and we're going to make a whole big sermon or a big teaching point about it. So really, we want to be careful about that. Also, we have to be careful in applying narratives as a model of behavior in every circumstance. Is Scripture full of narrative examples not to follow? Absolutely. You can think of the patriarchs. Should we model our behavior after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in every situation? Probably not. Definitely not, right? You see the, you know, you see polygamy, which is never endorsed by God. You see, you know, that dynamic, family dynamic that that creates. You see lying, deception, um, all kinds of things going on, okay? We could take that even into the New Testament in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, many times, we want to directly apply everything that happened in the book of Acts and say, this is what everything that should be happening today, miracles, healing, all this stuff. But it's narrative. And so narrative, and this is important, you know, I've always remembered this saying, probably picked it up in Bible college, but narrative doesn't always mean normative. Okay? Narrative doesn't always mean normative. And Many times, narrative is giving a description of what happened and not necessarily a prescription of what should be happening, okay? So it might be descriptive and not prescriptive. And so that definitely comes into play with the book of Acts because there's lots of movements that want to say, we need to be doing all these miracles, everything that's happening in Acts, this is normative. Um, But really, it's just recording. This is what happened 
after Christ ascended and as the Holy Spirit came. And that, you know, there, of course, I think are things we can directly say, especially as we look at the epistles and the rest of uh, Scripture, that these are very applicable to us today. But there's other things that we recognize this was unique to the time. And God is uh, still inspiring his word and writing his word through these authors. And so miracles were a necessary means to communicate with people that this was God speaking. And now that we have the word of God, we don't need those miraculous signs. Um, So we want to be careful. Uh, Narrative does not always mean normative. And it might be descriptive and not prescriptive, okay? The next one is legal commands. Legal commands in Scripture are formally stipulations that bound covenant participants to a particular agreement. And therefore, what was legally binding for ancient Israel, Israelite and ancient Israelite may not be legally binding for the 21st century Christian. Okay, So when we get in the Old Testament, we see uh, the law. There's maybe lots of aspects where that's not applicable to us today because we're not under the Old Covenant, we're under the New. And we'll get into that with the next aspect of the theological aspect. But when you think about legal commands, we want to be careful that we're recognizing that distinction okay the next one's wisdom precepts okay so like your proverbs especially but really you can find them in different books of the bible wisdom literature is one of the most directly applicable things for us today because it causes the reader to meditate and apply what is being said so when we think about wisdom precepts these are usually the most direct directly applicable to us today. And I love the way the book puts it. Not only is the literature of proverbial wisdom naturally oriented to application. So think about the Proverbs. They're very applicable. They're very much geared toward the wise do this, the foolish do this. But they say it's also free from the constraints of situational and covenantal context. Proverbial wisdom tends to communicate truth in an ahistorical, timeless fashion. Meaning that usually it's not communicating those historical distinctions or cultural things. This reality is even further enhanced because wisdom reflects an approach to life in keeping with the built-in principles of God's creation, principles that transcend culture and history. So that's why the Proverbs are so, like, I remember reading through the Proverbs, I think it was back in 2020, it was amazing how many things were like, this is exactly what is going on today, this is exactly applicable to any situation, it's timeless. It's meant to not be bound by historical, cultural aspects. Uh, it's more, like they say, in, in pr- principles in keeping with God's intended creation that are, are that span various cultures and history. Okay. The next one's prophetic oracles. Um, Old Testament prophets must be understood within the framework of a given geopolitical and situational context. When you see these wisdom, or see these prophetic oracles. Uh, usually it's a prophet in Israel, there's a specific history going on, there's a specific culture that they're speaking to, but their message tends to transcend the confines of their own historical setting. And I like this example, they say, just as a pastor preaches with the intention to affect change in attitude and behavior, so the prophets did as well. One may need to sift through matters of historical distance and covenantal relationship in the evaluation of a given prophetic oracle, but the literary genre of prophetic oracle offers a straightforward path to application. So we can read, you know, the major and minor prophets, and we can, we do have to understand the culture and the historical aspects, but we can make lots of applications to ourselves pretty directly as we sift through that. And the last one is epistolatory 
exhortation. So this is the epistles, uh, Pauline epistles, um, John's epistles, Peter, um, you know, you've got James, Jude, those, those different ones. And so there may be cultural and situational elements to overcome in applying these epistles, okay, because uh, they're written to specific people in a specific culture, but they are very much geared towards application for us today. The epistles are uh, very applicable to the church today. There are some structural elements, greetings, benedictions, and epistolatory literature that aren't quite as tuned toward direct application. But for the most part, the main body of epistolatory literature is geared towards practical application. This is the case particularly because the same covenant, the new covenant, is in effect for the recipients of the New Testament letters and for Christians today. So that really transitions well to the last uh, idea, and that is of re- uh, this I- idea of relevant relevance and application regarding theology okay the aspect here is that we've got to consider the various covenants that are in place in scripture namely the old covenant versus the new covenant and so we're under the new covenant through christ's death and resurrection Um, we're not under the old covenant that doesn't mean we throw the old testament completely out don't hear me say that um but we have, to be, we have to sift through those distinctions when it comes to how God dealt with his people there, how God had revealed up to that point the whole picture of redemption wasn't fully in view. And so those are things to keep in mind um, when we're seeking to find relevance and application. The book says, One of the more striking issues in evaluation pertains to theological continuity and discontinuity. discontinuity. Simply stated, there are many commandments instructions and narrative examples in scripture that reflect covenantal relationships not possessed by modern readers and then they go on to say this and i like how this sums up this idea of being careful to be aware of these covenantal differences the fact that covenant affects the relevance of certain biblical texts doesn't negate legitimate appropriation of these texts whether by appropriating the underlying principles with some texts or by simply understanding God's program through redemptive history, all of Scripture has a critical function as the revealed Word of God. However, the degree and manner of relevance will be affected by covenantal distance. The reason we tend not to consider the food laws of Leviticus 11 as binding for today has little to do with cultural or situational relativity, and if just a matter of literary factors, we'd find a rather direct path to applying these laws. Rather, The issue is one of theological discontinuity. These laws, along with many others in the Levitical Code, pertain to a covenant that is not our covenant today. Their relevance must, therefore, be evaluated accordingly. Okay? So we want to be careful to understand, okay, here's what this was under the old covenant. And as they say, that doesn't mean there's no application. We don't even really need to touch on the Old Testament. Let's just focus on the new. That's not what we're saying at all. It's just that we want to understand we're not going to go up to someone and say, well, hey, Leviticus says you can't eat shellfish, so you shouldn't be eating shellfish, right? That's a different covenant. And so we want to be careful to understand those distinctions um, before we start throwing out Old Testament covenants and keeping people bound to those, okay? And it also helps us, a, a great part of the Old Testament is just seeing how God's revealed himself through history, how he's dealt with his people and just the full plan of salvation coming out. When we think about Leviticus and the Levitical laws, and if we put ourselves in the place of a 
Israelite in that day, we can feel the burden of trying to keep all those laws. And then when we see how God used that to show our need for a Savior that we can't meet His standard, it helps us understand that progression, what God's communicating to us, okay? So I conclude with just, uh, it's this idea of what they call in the book a relevance uh, continuum. And what this basically, I'll just summarize, I've got a couple, I don't think I put the quotes in your book, but basically when we're looking and we're walking through Scripture, it's not always black and white, okay, this passage applies and this passage doesn't apply at all. It's not one or the other. We're determining to what extent that application is relevant. Some passages aren't going to be as directly applicable, but we can find application in them. Others are going to be straight to us, you know, straight to the church. There's no cultural aspects or situational aspects. You know, it's an epistle directly to us, to our covenant, and so we can take that directly uh, as directly applicable. So there's a continuum. There's a, um, what's the word? a spectrum of how to apply Scripture. It's not just, okay, this passage applies and this passage doesn't. It's, it's uh, determining what level of relevance does this passage apply, and we're taking these factors into account, okay? Any questions before we wrap up? I hope that helps you to, again, it, that idea of the hermeneutical triad is so, if you don't take anything else away from that study, the hermeneutical triad, when it comes to, observing scripture, keying in on one of those historical, literary, and theological differences when it comes to interpretation and application. It's such a great tool to making sure we're properly uh, interpreting and applying scripture, okay? Any questions or thoughts before we close in prayer? All right, we'll pray and move on to our service.